Good morning. Kathy and I, for the last uh, several weeks, have been praying about uh, our day here with you. And uh, we enjoy being here and greeting all of you uh, dear people. And we like to count you as friends. And so we're just delighted. The song that uh, Randy sung is just a perfect introduction, I believe, to what I have to say today. God is too good to be unkind. And so when you don't understand, and some other words there, trust his heart. Trust his heart. I want to speak today on the general subject, when crises come into your life. Not will they come, but when. It's very clear that we live in a world that is filled with crisis after crisis. Crisis of mind and crisis of body and crisis of spirit. Some of you who are older will remember John Foster Dulles, who was the Secretary of State under President Dwight Eisenhower. And his diplomacy was called brinksmanship. And his policies were said to keep us continually on the brink of disaster or on the brink of crisis. And things aren't very much different today. And today we do have that Middle East crisis. We have a Far East crisis. We have a European crisis. We have a sanctity of life crisis and the abortion issue and others. We have a world drug crisis. We have a morality crisis. We have a violence crisis. We have an organized crime crisis. We have a famine crisis. We have a family life crisis with divorce leading the list. But then there's the wife abuse and child abuse crisis. And we could go on and on and on and on. And then we can add our own personal life crises. There are crises in relationships with parents spouses, friends. There's the crisis of illness. And any time I speak to a group this large, I know that there are several people here who have an illness of some sort, uh, who have a crisis of uh, body. There's the crisis of poverty and homelessness and loneliness and personal debt crisis. And the big question before us today is, Can God make a difference in these crises of ours? If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 12, and we'll read there some verses. Acts, chapter 12, beginning to read at verse 1. Reading, Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church, get this, in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivered him to four squads of soldiers, 
that is sixteen soldiers, to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was made fervently by the church to God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forth, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and roused him saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird thyself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know what was being done by the angel. That what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another city. I believe our passage today is very helpful as it speaks to the issue of crisis. And may the Lord himself also speak to us. I want to look at this passage in three ways. First of all, with regard to the unexpected crises of life. Secondly, when the crises of life seem unfair. And thirdly, what we may say when crises come to us or to a loved one. The unexpected crises of life. And I'd like for you to notice verses 1 to 3 that we read in Acts chapter 12. This passage really upsets me. It stirs up a vigilante spirit in me that would violate our Lord's command when he said, Vengeance is mine. Herod, on some impulse, some quirk, some change in attitude by the Jews, some resentment with Peter's contact with Cornelius, seizes some of the Christians for the enormous crime of belonging to the church. And the text adds another reason for Herod's actions. Notice the end of verse 1. It was in order to mistreat them or to persecute them. Now, the word translated mistreat means to injure. It means to afflict. It means to impose some hardship upon another. 
And so he asked, what kind of cruel person is this? What kind of sadistic, twisted mind does he possess? Who could possibly take pleasure in the suffering of another human being? And it feels so much like the totalitarian communistic countries. There's a knock at the door in the middle of the night. Armed men come in, seize father and mother and drag them away. And they're mistreated. And some like James are put to death. Solzhenitsyn, in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, in the first chapter entitled Arrest, says this, quote, That's all there is to it. You're arrested. And you'll find nothing better to respond than a lamb-like bleat. Me? What for? That's all. And neither for the first hour nor for the first day will you be able to grasp anything else. Me? What for? It's a mistake. They'll set things right. There's the suddenness of the crisis and being mistreated. Solzhenitsyn goes on to say, nothing is sacred in the church, in the search. During the rest of the locomotive engineer, Ainoshin, a tiny coffin stands in his room containing the body of a newly dead child. And the men take the coffin, dump the child's body out, and search it. They shake sick people out of their sick beds and they unwind the bandages in search beneath them. The Christians in A.D. 44, that's the time setting for our passage, like those in the 21st century, ask, Me? Why? What for? Why this sudden intrusion by Herod's soldiers? And Luke responds, in order to mistreat them. The unexpected crisis has fallen on good people. And Luke goes on in verse 3 to add, All this pleased the Jews. And Herod, emboldened by this kind of support, proceeds to arrest Peter as well. And so how does one cope with that? What does one do? What does one say? You know, protest marches are really out of the question. Several years ago, actually quite a number of years ago now, our Orinda neighbor filed for divorce from his wife. This was a few days after their son had graduated from Miramani High School. The wife was shocked. Had no idea this was coming. The unexpected crisis had struck. On another occasion, when I was teaching at the Bible school, one of my students told us the following abbreviated story. She had just turned 18, and her parents had gone for a ride in their speedboat on Lake Washington. It was to be their last speedboat ride, for the unexpected crisis happened. Both parents were killed 
in a tragic accident. How is it for you? Have you experienced the unexpected, the unwanted crisis? The unexpected crisis is one of life's constants. And the insurance industry is based on the premise that the unexpected happens with a predictable regularity. The insurance companies are equipped with statistical tables that help them to predict very accurately the number of automobile accidents, how many homes will burn, how many people will die per each age group in any given year. The unexpected crisis. One of the constants of life. Then there's the second consideration in our passage, and it's the issue of fairness. How many of you have ever asked, why me? Why not also them? At the top of the page in my Bible, possibly in yours, there's a summary statement of what is contained on that page. And then the page which contains Acts chapter 12, in my Bible it says, in dark print, Herod kills James, Peter is set free. Why James? Why not also Peter? I wonder what James's mother thought. You know, she was the lady who had great ambition for her two sons, James and John. She wanted a special place for them when Jesus set up his kingdom. She wanted her sons to sit on one on Jesus' right and one on Jesus' left. She wanted that special place of near Jesus for her children. And I have to say that she was expressing a noble request. What mother wouldn't want a place of special nearness to Jesus for her children? Well, how did she feel when James is killed, beheaded, and Peter is set free? Why was my son killed? Why was Peter spared? Why wasn't there a miracle for my son as well? We have no record of what she said or how she felt. We're not even sure whether she was alive. But the questions still remain. Have you ever felt your situation, your position in life was unfair? It's not that you dwell on it continually, for that would make you a very cynical an angry person. But every now and then, do you not in your spirit say, why me? My mother did not get a pension because my father died three months too early. He put 19 years and nine months and failed to reach a magical 20th anniversary with the Union Pension Fund. And I confess that I struggled with what I perceived to be a fairness issue. 
I think I was more upset and more angry than my mother was. I protested, wrote letters, and was turned down every time. I did get a little relief uh, knowing that at least I had tried. Well, what can we say about this issue of fairness when the unexpected crisis strikes? Well, I want to suggest three possible responses. And I trust that they'll be fairly clear. First, there is the principle of brotherly love that needs to be expressed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 26, it speaks about weeping with those that weep and rejoicing with those that rejoice. I confess that for me, it's easier to weep with those that weep than to rejoice with those that rejoice. That's something to me very likely. But this is where you and I come in. If a person suffers bereavement, loss of relationship, financial reversal, I believe that a very appropriate response might be to sit down and weep with the person suffering. When our daughter Joy was killed seven years ago, the response that I appreciated most of all was when a person just just hugged me and wept. That was the most meaningful response for me. In, I turn to Job chapter 6. Uh, Job chapter 6. Now, if you turn your Bibles and you just flip it open in the middle, you come to the Psalms. And Job is the book just before the Psalms. Job chapter 6. This is one, to me, one of the great verses uh, in the Bible. Job chapter 6 and verse 14. Just get this verse. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. Not necessarily great deeds, not necessarily money gifts. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. Why? Lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. Kindness is such a healer, such a helper to be kind. This word kindness is sometimes translated heart. And Job wants people's heart to be with him. He wants their presence. He wants their sympathy. He wants their love. Should we give our brother or our sister anything else? And I believe that Job wants to be hugged with some kind of feeling. A man by the name of Leo Biscaglia is the best, was the best known professor at the University of Southern California. 
He, teach, he taught a class, he's dead now, he taught a class entitled Love 1A. There was room for 200 students in his class. And there was a waiting list of six to 800 students trying to get in. It is the only class in the United States with such an unusual listing. Love 1A. He has written a number of books entitled Living, Loving, and Learning, Bus 9 to Paradise, Papa, My Father, and a number of others. Buscalia used to lecture to hundreds and thousands of people all over the West Coast and throughout the United States. And one of the amazing things he does after every lecture is to invite his audience to come and give him a hug. And it's amazing to see hundreds and hundreds of people lining up to give this very ordinary looking man a hug. And in one of his books, uh, Buscalia describes the hugs. He says, there's the bone crusher hug, you know. <laughs> there's the lingering hug. There's the slap them on the back kind of hug. There's the sensual hug. There's the I care hug. And there is the, do I have to do this kind of hug. You know, when the unexpected crisis occurs, I think one of the best kind of things that we can do is to give someone an I care kind of hug. I really care. The principle of brotherly love, weeping with those that weep, is the most appropriate response to the crisis in, in life. Then there is a second response, I think. And this is the response that comes from what I call seeing the glory of God. Now, what do I mean by that? There is a little book in the Old Testament. You have a tough time finding it sometimes. And you think somebody maybe has torn it out of your Bible, but it's there. It's called the book of Habakkuk. And in either the second or third verse in chapter 1, there is this word, violence. Habakkuk is experiencing violence. And then the verse goes on to say, but I get no answer. But I get no answer. Violence. And Job complained about the same thing when he called violence. But both men become satisfied to the very depths of their souls because they had entered into some measure of seeing the majesty and glory of God. They entered this knowing not when they were feeling well, and able maybe to concentrate on the good book that has all the answers, you know, five ways in which you can feel better during a crisis. Uh, but they, were, they came to that knowing when they were uh, miserable. They both discovered what it meant to really know God. 
And that this knowing God was far greater than the answer to their why questions. Oh, the problem with why questions is somebody gives you a response number one, but you're not quite satisfied and you always want to look for response number two. And then number two doesn't quite satisfy and you want number three. And so it goes on and on. You're never really completely satisfied to the answers to why questions. In the book of Job, chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41, there are 40 questions that God asks Job. Modern people, modern scientists, can maybe answer seven or eight of those questions. Now, God does not ask those questions in order to make us feel dumb. God asks those questions in order that we might understand who He is. Where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Huh? I don't know. And on and on he asked the questions. Question one, question two, question three, and so forth and so on. One of the questions we can answer is, uh, have you entered into the treasures of the snow? And we know today what a great help snow is to land. It refurbishes the land. It replenishes the nutrients in the land. And so we know the answer to that question. But Job finally saw the majesty of God. And so what does he say? He says in chapter 42, My ear had heard of you, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. He finally saw God in a way that he had never seen him before. Did God answer his questions in the book of Job? No. No. He never did find out what it was that caused him to lose ten children. I can't imagine that. I lost one. I can't imagine it. Never did know. When all of his props the things that he uh, thought were so big, all of his possessions, one of the wealthiest men in the world at that time, lost it all. Afflicted with one of the horrible diseases of the day. Never got an answer as to why. Even though three friends tried to help him. And they ended up calling them miserable comforters or miserable counselors. When we believe in a big God, a purposeful God, 
you know, it helps us with our questions. And the questions uh, become a little smaller in size and a little smaller in importance when we recognize that we are in God's family and He loves us and He has a future for us that far exceeds anything that I can possibly imagine. And it's tremendously reassuring to know that any crisis in life, and I mean any crisis in life, is so big that it will separate me from God. There is no crisis that can separate me from God. In Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, there are 27 eventualities of life. And Paul says, none of these can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. None! And you look at those 27 there, and they're pretty far embracing, pretty far reaching. They encompass everything. Neither height nor depth, you know, and, and on it goes. Can separate me from the love of God. A third response to the issues of crisis in one's life is found in our text in verse 5. And that's prayer. Prayer makes even iron gates to yield. Did you notice verse 10? Peter, a leader of the Jerusalem church, is imprisoned shortly after Passover. And Herod is going to bring him out before the people. That's the sense of verse 4. James had been executed Privately, he was beheaded by the sword. Public executions would call for the executioner's axe. And this text suggests in verse 4 that Peter would be put on display. The text says, brought before the people. And that suggests he would be made fun of, first of all, and then executed publicly. On the night before his execution, Peter is sleeping. Question. How many here do you think would sleep the night before the gas chamber or the executioner's sword? You think you'd be sleeping? What gave Peter sleep? How could he sleep? I believe it was because prayer was being made fervently by the church as we have recorded in verse 5. Fervent prayer. Or earnestly. James was dead, yes. And the church would not accept that Peter's death was inevitable. They would not accept that. No, they would pray harder. More fervently, more earnestly. Perhaps they took their cue from Jesus Himself. You remember how when He was in the garden, 
it says this in Luke's Gospel, And being in an agony, He, Jesus, prayed the more earnestly. The word uh, fervently or earnestly in the text here literally means to agonize. To be strained. To stretch forward. This was an unusual prayer meeting. There was heat in the meeting, I'd like to suggest. There was passion there was urgency. There was a, a reaching, a stretching out to God. These folks were not just saying their prayers. They were calling out to God with all the emotion and with all of the seriousness and with all of the passion that they could muster. If anyone could, anything could be done, God would have to do it. And so they present their case to God. The next thing, and I'm sure you all notice this, while it is true there was passion in the prayer meeting, there was also imperfect faith. Just like me, and maybe like a lot of you. Look at verse 13. When Rhoda came to the door, she recognizes Peter's voice, and leaves him standing at the door, goes back to the room where the people are praying, and said, hey, you know, Peter's out there at the door. And they respond to her in verse 15, you're out of your mind. When they were praying fervently, didn't they believe their, what they were praying? Were they not believing? Were they just going through some motion with emotion? And I'd say, let's not criticize them. You know, I'm really thankful for this story because it cheers me in my praying. I pray and God knows I believe Him. And sometimes I wonder whether He'll really do what I ask. These people prayed earnestly and doubted at the same time. It can't be Peter, even though we've been praying for him. And yet, the force of imperfect prayer, imperfect faith, is greater than Herod. Greater and mightier than Herod. And all of the forces that held Peter. This is normal human faith, I suggest. The kind that we have most of the time. And we all identify, I suspect, with the man who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. We're thankful for a God who understands. May the Lord help us during the crises of life to love and weep with those that weep. 
to give one another the embrace of loving and caring. And incidentally, uh, we don't have to wait when there's a crisis. We can still love one another and give each other a hug. That's okay, too. But may the Lord help us to see Him clearly, who He is, His majesty, His glory, His greatness, His unsurpassed greatness. And may the Lord help us to pray earnestly. And the last thing I'd like to say is for anyone here who has not yet put their trust in this God that we've been talking about. A God who responds in crisis. Please know that an eternal crisis that has no solution awaits all who reject the free offer of salvation. And this is the, an opportunity for those who have not responded to Jesus. Who have not said, Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for taking my sins upon yourself. But this is an opportunity to say yes to Jesus today. And would you do that today? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that uh, you are present with us in the crises of life. You are present with us in the good times. And Father, we thank you that uh, we will be together with you forever where you are in heaven. Thank you for making the way open to us. Thank you for bringing us into your family. Thank you for embracing us and loving us. And Father, we want to pray this morning too for some who may not know this God of love, this God who embraces us so warmly, so kindly, Father, we pray for any here who might not know you. And, and if there is someone like that here today and would like to uh, make a commitment today, would you raise your hand? Father, we say thank you for the free offer that you give us. Bless this congregation. Thank you for it. Thank you for these dear people, some of whom I know are struggling. And uh, we pray, Father, that they might see you in a wonderful, personal way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.